Waving autumn swept away The dusty seaside bars Left scouring in the wake of Okay, listeners, you're in for a treat for this episode. I know it's been longer than usual since the last one, but, you know, as things get back to normal, it means life can get in the way. And I'm not sure what the future holds for this podcast. I'm still going to do it, but maybe not as regularly, at least not for the time being. But hit that subscribe button because you never know. I might pop up in a day or two or three. So, hint, hint, there might be another episode just around the corner. But really, if there's any way for me to go out, or not that I'm going out, mind you, I'm just going to be taking a bit of a break, though, again, you might want to stay tuned because something could be coming up in the next few days. This is how you do it. I can't even put into words how meaningful this interview is. My guest is Larry Kerwin, singer and lead songwriter for one of the most seminal Irish-American bands ever. Period. Full stop. Black 47. Black 47 had their heyday in the early to mid-90s in New York when songs like Funky Kalia and Maria's Wedding rocketed up and down the alternative charts, as we called it back then. Larry is a rare bird. He is a songwriter, for sure, but he's also a novelist, a playwright, and a historian. In addition to the 300-plus songs he's written, he's authored several books in some fiction and nonfiction, including his newest novel called Rockaway Blue, which came out this summer. In this episode, we talk about three fantastic Black 47 songs, Big Fella, which is his ode to the great Irish war hero, Michael Collins, Fire of Freedom, and I Won't Take You Home Again, Kathleen. We talk about his novel, Rockaway Blue, and a brand new tune based on the book, also called Rockaway Blue. In fact, that song you heard at the very beginning of this, just a few seconds ago, that's an exclusive. He recorded that just for this show. So you haven't heard it anywhere, and it's not been recorded anywhere, except for here. So, I mean, come on, how cool is that? But it gets better, because we talk about history, Irish and American history, and the current state of U.S. politics. It gets better than that, too, because Larry also talks about how he met legendary Clash singer-songwriter Joe Strummer in New York in Black 47's early days. So yeah, add that up. Music, history, politics, songwriting, and Joe Strummer in one episode? What else do you want? Now, it might help the listener if you had a bit of background about Ireland, Northern Ireland, folks like Michael Collins, Patrick Pierce, and the other Easter Rising heroes. But the fight for freedom is universal. And so are Larry's songs. Larry is as much teacher as he is an artist. And it is my great honor to welcome him to Four Songs. Thank you so much, Larry, for joining me. Welcome to Four Songs. This is a real pleasure for me to chat with you. And uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. That's a pleasure. I was just thinking, because you mentioned some of the songs, I was thinking, how did they come about? <laughs> some of it was a surprise to me to think back on it, because it was a... A lot of haze in the early days of Black 47 that it's good to clear up even at this point. First question is, how have you been doing the last year and a half, the pandemic? You know, it was a tough time. I, very early on, I had a friend who died in it. Oh. And, uh, and he, he actually was around a lot in the early Black 47 days. And uh, wasn't that we'd even lost touch. We just drifted apart. And then when he died, it just brought everything back, you know, our connection. He, he, was, he was from Belfast and uh, he was a gay guy. And he came out in Belfast in the 1980s, which was a really dangerous thing to do. And he survived that, came over to the U.S. and became a, a gay rights activist. All of a sudden, the, the pandemic killed him within, it, it seemed, within days. And uh, it was a big shock. I have a place 
up in Connecticut. I actually moved up here uh, because it was, it was just so unsafe in New York at the time. And I, I decided to uh, do something new and I came up with an, a musical that I'd always wanted to write from a perspective of two people. I did that, it's called All the Rage. So I dove into that. In a way, it got me through the, the whole thing. And then I had a book that needed to be finished to be published called Rockaway Blue. And between those two things, you know, I was just working all the time. So this may sound like a, a dumb question because I know you've been writing for forever, but as a novelist, a playwright and a songwriter, what's your first love? Music, books, plays, or are they all the same to you? Or how, does it, how do you prioritize? Or? Well, they all come from the same idea. You know, you get an idea about something and it, either fits into one of the slots or you force it in. They're very much the same in ways in that there has to be a source, something that you really want to write about. But then the rules within each of them is different. And you you really have to put it into years, working at them and failing at them. Because I never went to school for anything like that. I just kind of picked it all up and you, you just gotta, you have to make the mistakes, I think, and to figure out how to do things. But I would say of all of them, the, I could tell you how to write a book, a novel, or how to write a play, give you the, the basic rules and everything. But with songwriting, it's still very magical to me. It's kind of like when the, the hammer hits a stone and a spark comes, or the hammer hits an anvil and the sparks come in the unifying of the lyrics and the music. And to this day, I'm not even quite sure how I do it. It's just a, a feeling you get almost inside your, your chest or your breast and it's that something is right and that you're on the track to something. And it's, oh. it's like catching it in midair then. If you can catch it and do it at that instant, but if you leave it for too long, uh, it, the idea evaporates and it's gone. One of the questions that I, I was always wanted to ask you is you know, you're writing you know, both plays, books and, and, and songs. That, is it harder, and I think you may have just answered it, but to write a song about a guy like Michael Collins into such a short, you know, with a novel you have unlimited down pages, but the song you got four to six minutes and that's gotta be really hard to take someone's life and compact it into that short time frame. I mean, how do you, how do you find the appropriate voice for, for that? Well, you have to find the voice. You have to find what, what it is you really want to say. So let's take the Michael Collins song. I'd always love Michael Collins, but he's a very divisive figure in Ireland. I grew up in an old grandfather who had loved Collins too, but when the treaty came about how to, to get a new Ireland from the British, there was a split. And my grandfather took the opposite side, the Republican side to Collins. And I was kind of on that side too, but I still really love Collins. So it was an issue between us growing up. And then I was, uh, it was one of those things I just couldn't find out how to do it because I was in Black 47 and we didn't, 
we didn't write kind of rah-rah kind of songs. The songs always had to have questions within them. And, you know, history is like that. It's not black and white. It's, you know, a hundred shades of gray. And as you're saying, how do you put that hundred shades of gray into five or six minutes? And I was down in West Cork in a place called Clonakilty, where uh, Collins is from. And I went into a little old museum. It was the the Michael Collins Museum, but it was also the schoolhouse, just a one-room schoolhouse that he had gone to school in. And it was now a museum. And there were some letters in there, and they were from Republicans who were on the other side of Collins at this time during the Civil War. And they were from two local Republicans, and they were going to get executed the next day. And yet they were writing about Collins, even though they were, they'd split with him, they still had this admiration for him. So that was it. I was able to look at Collins from an, from an, an opposite direction. Instead of someone who unequivocally loved him, as I did, from these two young men who were in their 20s, early 20s, who were about to be executed the next day and their feelings about him. And from that contrary kind of impulse, I was able to find the song. And then I constructed it. I wanted to get a piece of ancient poetry in there. So that the whole first part of the song is that poetry that I set to music and then coming with a big guitar after 30 or 40 seconds. You know, to get all the dissonance that was going on in the Irish Civil War at the time, and then to find Collins within it. So it was a big task. Uh, it didn't come easy, that one. Yeah, the song was called The Big Big Fella from Home of the Brave, which came out in 1994. And as I was reading, as I read the... Tim Pat Coogan book, yeah. Yeah, I, I read that you know, a couple of years ago, and you know, that's, a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it's such a dense biography, and then... I think I learned more from your song just because it, it's. I remember a, a person saying to me that I, I understand cons better from your song than from the movie hmm. that was made about him and which is a great compliment, but 
but they're just two different things with the with the song you can you can harness passion and feeling and in a way that's a lot harder to do in in a biography or in a movie or even a novel you know you as i say you strike lucky and you, you cap you hit the vein as it were and things work Well, I could talk about this song for quite a long time, as you can tell. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant tune. But wanted to switch gears and talk about Fire Freedom, which came from your major label debut of the same name. That was a difficult song. The lyrical inspiration was that, you know, the things weren't going well in Northern Ireland or the north of Ireland at that point. And the war had been going on i wrote that song maybe in 90 sometimes in sometime in 1990 or maybe 91 and the war had been going on since 68 so that's 23 years and it just didn't seem like it was ever going to end you know the british with mrs thatcher she you know she just wasn't going to she was gone, I think, at that point, but the, the British Conservative Party wasn't going to allow freedom. But, and that it struck me that once, once a people gets freedom in their mind, that spark of freedom or the fire of freedom, there's just no putting it out. You know, you, you can't stop the march of a nation. So the song is in two parts mm -hmm. and I had always loved reggae. I said, Chris Byrne, uh, the, uh, my partner in the band at the time. So we had, we had been playing a lot of reggae with, with other songs. And I decided, you know, to get a song that would be a black 47 anthem and yet, and have it about Ireland and have it about freedom and yet tie the whole thing together with a reggae beat. So Fire of Freedom, the first part of it 
was difficult to do. And then, because there was a lot of different chords in it, uh, the melody was hard to nail down. Because reggae shouldn't be hard to do. <laughs> and yet it was this sound that was breaking my heart. Mm -hmm. And so then there's, there's an old uh, Irish folk song called uh, Orosha de Vahawalia, which is Gaelic for uh, Orosha de Vahawalia Anishar Yachtan Taura, which means, uh, isn't it great to be home now that the summer is coming? And that was from a poem by Padraig Pierce, who is the first president of the Irish Republic, who got shot for his troubles in 1916, executed by the British. But it had been used in, um, as a kind of a code thing, asking Irish people all over the world to come back to Ireland now that the summer is coming, now that freedom is coming. So people used to sing it in front of the British army. And, you know, they didn't know what it was because it was, you know, you, so you could be a rebel by just humming this song as a British army person around. I decided, let me connect that to the first song and then it'll be a release because the chords and the melody are just very simple. So in, in essence, that song um, became, kind of wrote itself. I put all the parts there and we messed with it on stage and then we found that some of the transitions weren't working and someone would come up with some kind of a crazy chord or some kind of sequence or drum beat or whatever. And then eventually after about three months, the song was there and it was done. Okay. And, uh, I know that 
occasionally I try to do it <laughs> solo. Oh. And it is a bitch of a song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, can I, I can realize, you know, that's because it took us three months to do it as a band. And then here I am trying to do this on stage. And I, I don't know how to get from one thing to the next. You know, it's like a, a jump across a river sometimes. Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's so subtle, the shift, because it starts out, it's, it's like a love letter in a sense to... Yeah, it sounds it sounds subtle now. You should have heard some of the uh, <laughs> the versions in Patty Riley's, except that you know we had got that reputation and we didn't care. You know, it's, we weren't going to rehearse because everybody in the band depended on the money from the band. So the way we looked at it as a day's rehearsal, you were even paying for a studio, you're giving up a paying gig. So it was more important to us to go out on stage with a song like Fire Freedom that we, we knew all the parts, say, but we hadn't figured out how to do them. So we just uh, chill, as they say, and see what happened. And then Fred was really good. Fred, the trombone player, was really good at taking notes, whereas the rest of us were all drinking and everything like that. <laughs> And he would remember it the next time. He said, don't forget, we went, we modulated at that point, and it was a hammy played a, a little drum solo, and we go, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we'd, we'd do it. Hmm. Well, I think the reason why I, I was thinking there's there's a the connection between the, the, there's the Irish connection, but I feel like maybe the timing of when you wrote this, you know, in the end of the Cold War, and you had what happening in in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and you know, a few years later, we had the peace accords, but also things are changing in, in South Africa too. And I feel like you've made the song pretty universal by not being so specific. I mean, yeah. you reference there's the Malcolm X quote about chickens coming home to roost in the White House, but it's kind of universal. Yeah, you know, and the funny thing about that line is it it never went out of uh Anytime we were doing it, I think that line still works. Chickens coming home to roost in the White House. Things never change. Later we're back at the beginning Sick of waiting round for divine intervention Take to the streets if you're looking for redemption I tried to do that with a lot of the Black 47 songs, not to have them so specific, but to have them be universal, you know, that sort of anyone could use them. Like one of the, the biggest things at a Black 47 gig is when people would come up to you, they would say, the first thing they would say, I'm not Irish, but that would be their introduction. You know, I'm not Irish, but I, I can relate to your music. And, uh, you know, it, and it makes sense. And one group in particular really got into it like that. And that was Native Americans. Mm. 
which was kind of amazing yeah. to me, but they, they uh, understood the songs right from the heart straight away. And oddly enough, a lot of uh, English people did too, you know, that, uh, because the songs weren't anti-English so much as they were anti-establishment. So right. We always had a bigger following in England than in Ireland, oddly enough. Hmm. Um, well, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of, I know you were influenced by The Clash heavily, and I mean, they were the first band I ever fell in love with. And I, I think it was, was it your quote? I think you said something about the extent of to be Irish is to be political. Was that something that you said? I yeah, I said yeah. that. And I've been quoting on that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Especially people disagree with what I'm saying politically. Mm -hmm. But Joe Strummer was a, was he was a really interesting influence on Black Forty Seven. Not just his music. He showed up in Patty Riley's one night, and this is really early on because the place wasn't that full. And I remember I was wrestling with a, a lead part on a song, and you know th that's what we did it. I could. If I wasn't getting the part right, I could just keep going with it and the band would wait, you know, would be playing and say, yeah, take it away, man, you know, fire ahead. And I kept wrestling with this and I had my eyes closed. I don't want to look at my fingers because I'm afraid I'd really screw it up. And I opened my eyes and there is, <laughs> is Joe Strummer looking at my fingers as I'm playing the thing. And I'm thinking, this is the first time I'd seen him. And I think to myself, am I seeing things? That's no stronger because I closed my eyes straight away in case I'd really screw up. And I kind of scrunched my eyes open. And it was Joe Strummer kept staring at my fingers. See, what is he trying to do? <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, well, fucking Joe Strummer is here. And then afterwards, he, he called me over and said, I want to talk to you about this song and this song and this song. He's very together Joe was and he wanted to know the basis of the songs and then he wanted to tell me where I was getting some of the influences from not in a nasty way but just as a, a way of showing me where the song was coming from that it might help me and that it, he was amazing like that he had such a knowledge of music and uh, and was so open uh, that he, he got me to think of songwriting in a more analytical way. I'd been going totally, you know, from the heart and soul. I mean, I've been around music a, a long time before Black 47, so I had basis of chords and things like that. But what Joe saw was that you didn't get it from the chords or you got it from something you heard way, way back that you can't even remember. And if you know what that is, then you might be able to uh, make a better song of it because you can go back to that moment when you got that inspiration from yeah. Well, in addition to being political and you know, writing a lot about Ireland, uh, New York plays central in a lot of your music too. And I wanted to talk about the song, I Want to Take You Home Again, Kathleen from New York Town, which that album was about New York. Yeah, and I I love New York Town that album. I just I found it to be you know, so I can't really think of the right word to describe it, but you know it just feels like there's a looseness, natural sound to it that kind of stands out from some of the earlier albums. That you know I love those earlier stuff, but I feel like New York Town was 
just like a, a moment in time. If that makes sense. Yep. And you know, you know why? Because it came after nine uh, eleven. Black Forty Seven was the kind of the the New York band at the time, and we were the only band that kept playing because we had Connolly's every Saturday night. We weren't in New York. It was open for us. So we went back into Connolly's right after 9-11 and nobody was uptown running. And the word got out that we were doing it and all the first responders came up. They were really intense Saturday nights or something like you know, for a couple of months, we, well, we, no, we stayed there for about for a year on Saturday nights because it was it was necessary that music should be in Midtown and bringing people back in. But they were really intense gigs because you didn't know who was alive and who was dead at the time. So I didn't really write ending for the first year, and then I realized, oh man, this that's stupid. You know, there's so much to write about. So there was a plan for the New York Town album right from the start. And that was that we write about New York before 9-11 and the year, the couple of years before it and in, in the year or two after. And I think it came out in 2004, maybe 2003. So it was a series of songs about the history of New York and what New York was like before, you know, when everyone was optimistic and it was, we're all looking outwards. And then there was that feeling afterwards that things would never be the same again. And that, that was the core of what the album was about. So we decided also to write a song about each of the boroughs of New York. And like Staten Island Baby is obvious and uh, whatever, but I Won't Take You Home Again, Kathleen, was one of the last songs written for it. And that was about Queens and about, rock, about Rockaway in Queens, which I was pretty close to. So it was just a song that, you know, that about a romance that had happened in the glory days before 9-11. And then after 9-11, the couple in it didn't see each other in the same way. So the guy in the saying is, you know, it's come down to this, Kathleen, you know, I'm not taking you home anymore. You know, you've changed, I've changed and... 
despair at a wedding Eyes too upset to think about What you were up to with Kevin But let me touch your face one last time And I'm out of here or out of my mind Kathleen, it's been a dream Look out, you Can't take any more of your disguises. I won't take you home again, Kathleen. Now twilight bleeds in your hair. Oh, I can't see anywhere left for us to go. I won't take you home again, Kathleen. I I always took from a thing that I, I learned from William Butler Yeats, the poet. He had a saying. Poetry should be cold and passionate as the dawn. So that, that's really about balance. You know, that the dawn is flaring and blaring, but usually it's cold outside during the dawn. And so I took Yeats to mean that if you're writing something that's very down, put an upness to it, and that will... Uh, balance it out and consequently if you're writing something that's really up add some something a little heavy to it and with the I won't take you home again Kathleen I wanted a really up-tempo beat kind of a, an optimistic song so even though he's saying I'll never see you again uh, you become a different person that's it between us And that carried forward into the book I've just written, uh, Rockaway Blue. I, I used that for two of the characters in the book. So okay. the song became a book in a sense, or became part of a book. Can you just talk how that transition happened? Well, to go back to the, those first nights in, in, uh, in, Connolly's, right? It was, they were surreal because the word got out Black 47 was playing and you know some of the fans came in, but a lot of people were scared to come into New York or into um, Manhattan or into Midtown Manhattan at the time. But the, so the biggest uh, part of the audience was first responders. And in that first week or the first two weeks, a lot of people forget that we didn't know who was dead and who was alive. And so there's a door into the upstairs room of Connolly's. And every time that door would open, people would, everyone would turn around and look. And it would be like, ah, John made it. And I was like, yeah. And everybody would run over and 
the big hugs and everything. Our Mary got out of the tower and we knew she was up in near Cantor Fitzgerald and she made it down, you know? Wow. And I kept that idea in my mind. John made it, Mary made it, but how about the other people who would have, were big Black 47 fans who didn't make it through? And over the years after that, I wanted to write something about John and Mary, and I wanted to write about Pat and Joan who didn't. And that's, that's what Rockaway Blue is about, about the, the, some of the people who made it through and some who didn't, and how those who did make it through um, were able to deal with the fact that they were never gonna see the people who didn't again, and to see how these characters would fare over the years. And that's what it was all about. And I tried to do it in a play, and a, the play was actually put on. It was called The Heart Has a Mind of Its Own, but it didn't work. It was, people liked the play and everything, but I, I found I didn't capture what I was really looking for in it. So I put the play aside and then, uh, you know, it took a long time and I started to write the book and I got most of it down and I, I didn't feel like I had it. And it was really important to me to get it right. And so it finally just came out, you know, a month ago. And so you're talking uh, damn near 20 years, you know, to, to get it right. But it was really important because Black 47 was such a New York band. Yeah. If anyone was going to capture that feeling, I mean, the Ramones were a, a, a great New York band and Talking Heads, all of those bands are great New York bands. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the Ramones style would fit writing about something like that. Like, mm -hmm would definitely be really interesting, as would Talking Heads. But for Black 47, it was something that was within our bounds that we could do. You know? Hooray for autumn swept away the dusty seaside bars Left scowling in the wake of Thistlefield of scars Don't bother listening to the Sirens and guitars Cause those keys jingling in your purse Belong to someone else's stolen car and the wind until the stars feel like exploding and there's no one left to blame just me and you lost in our rock I mean the line I like the most in this this song is um, in the song Rockaway Blue rather is he was onto something big but something beat him to it I mean that just that, that yeah. grab the brand was on to Something big, something beat him to it. Now I'll never know for sure if he knew what he was doing. 
So that to me summarized Brian. You know, he, he had found out, he thought he'd found out what it was and he was really close. And then at the last minute he realizes, oh my God, you know, I, it was right in front of me, but I didn't see what was coming with the, the 9-11 uh, attack. He thought it was, as I would have, that if you were getting training to fly airplanes, you were going to uh, hijack them and fly to Libya or somewhere. That's what he was after. Whereas who would have thought that we were going to crash into, into the towers? You know, so he was that close, but, you know, not close. And that was the premise of the book in lots of ways. So there, in that whole song, there are different clues as to what was going on in the book. The roadies have removed the gear The stage to light is broken There's no one to protect you now from Sorrow and from nature The kind of man has shown his hand The Hudson waves are raging And the center cannot hold because the stars, they are exploding and there's no one left to blame, just me and you lost in our rockaway blue. You also have the another Yates reference, the center cannot hold. Yeah. In there. I've, I mean, used, I've used Mr. Yates quite a bit yeah. <laughs> over, over the years. He's, he's a, an amazing writer in that he often doesn't say the obvious, but by not saying the obvious, the obvious becomes more intense, you know? And I've learned that from him. Uh, I, I suppose I know his stuff so well now, or know lots of it, that uh, it's kind of like what Richard Thompson was saying, it's kind of part of your vocabulary and you use that. And uh, that particular thing in uh, the center cannot hold is and slouching towards Bethlehem, all those. They're so apropos of what's going on in the world since he wrote those and probably before it too. Yeah. And especially now, I mean, I'm just south of Washington and just seeing what's going on or you know, January 6th and the way people are just don't even want to talk about it. It's just like, this is what he was talking about when the center cannot hold. <laughs> Things fall apart. It's, it's amazing. And, you know, you can say what you like about Trump. And I've said a lot about him. None of it complimentary. But he has changed America. Yeah. He has made ignorance cool. Uh, and, he, and he's a shyster. You know, he's, 
I don't want to keep it. He's most of the things he says himself. It's just stay in power. That's that's the mm-hmm. thing. That's all that counts. Win at all costs, and to hell with the country you're leaving behind. Yeah, it's, it's as someone who's spent most of my life in the establishment of DC politics and just seeing how it's just like how hopeless. I never felt so hopeless <laughs> about our country. Yeah, well, you just gotta stick to the truth because. I always look back to the, the struggle in the north of Ireland, which is right. it's an outrageous thing. There's so many innocent people getting killed on both sides. But when I go back to Belfast now, I can't believe it. It's like I would never have said that Belfast was going to become the city it is now back in when I was writing songs about it and say in the 90s in a big way. You know, it's, it's a changed city. And part of it is the internet. One of the good things about the internet, people were able to get out of their little neighborhoods and see the world, you know, through the, the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, the internet is responsible for a lot of bullshit too. Yeah. <laughs> but it has that thing of being able to look beyond your own little neighborhood. I can go into neighborhoods in, in East Belfast now that I wouldn't have dreamed of going into. I still probably wouldn't go into them at night, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I go into them and I see that the people are not any different than the people who are living, you know, 600 yards away from them who are, who are both consider themselves totally different, but they're not. Yeah. They're all looking outwards now. Yeah, we spent a couple of weeks in the town, a little town called Moy in Karnayama, and then yeah. drove to Belfast a couple of times, and then we drove to the, into... Sligo down to Galway and to, to Dublin and just I want to go back. My my mom's side is is from County Armagh or County Monaghan actually. So Monaghan, uh, yeah, yeah, right on uh, the border. Yeah, right. So it's I grew up kind of. I, I can't say I was steeped in it, and it really wasn't until I started listening to you that I you, know, you all were my entree really to the the tragic history of Ireland. And then when I went there, I even though it was years after it was 2012. So the piece was has held and it wasn't anything like it was when you were writing about it, but it was still like you could, it, I just didn't know fully understand it until I went there. And, but how would you, you know, it's, 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 right. it's a, it's a hard thing to understand for the people even there. Uh, but I actually found that Irish Americans kind of understand the North better than Southern Irish. Because, yeah, Southern Irish, and I'm one, I'm a Southern Irish person, but you're still so much under the influence of British media. So it takes about seven years being over here before you're totally free of that media, you're able to wash it out of your head and actually look back and see what did happen and what didn't happen. And, you know, Yates again put it into words he said much hatred little room and that's that's the understanding that and trying to disentangle all the hatred and realize that people are the same no matter what you know yeah it's gotta it's gotta go with them well i want to again thank you so much larry uh are you we now that things are somewhat opening up, do you think you'll be doing any book tours for? for yeah, def- definitely. Yeah, yeah. Right. I definitely want to get out and and 
do a couple of those songs, like do the Rockaway Blues song also and combine it with the reading. I, I actually like doing these things because they make me think, where did the songs come from? And uh, after doing something like this, I feel a sense of lightness. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I got, I got rid of that bullshit that was inside me. <laughs> I, can, I can see where the songs came from, you know. And, uh, yeah. Well, what can I say about that? That was an interview. I want to thank Larry again so much for doing that and giving me so much of his time. We could have kept talking if you couldn't tell, and I got it. My cat is here. He is yelling at me. I guess he's hungry. He's been fed, so don't worry about him. He's just fine. Anyway, thank you again, Larry. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. I will be back. I'll be back very soon if you didn't get the hint from the beginning. So anyway, thank you, Larry, and thank you for listening. See ya.